Welcome to It's Time, the daily Bible teaching program of Mike Kessler, pastor of the River Christian Fellowship in Twin Falls, Idaho. Today we're going verse by verse through the book of John. So turn there in your Bibles as we join Pastor Mike. Father, as we go to your word today, thank you for it. The God, so many voices in the world, and yet we can go to your word and get your truth. That's what we need today. And so as we would spend this time studying your word, may you speak to us. May you open our eyes to what you have for us here. That this is not just ink on paper, but God, it's your living heart written for us. And so speak to us now, encourage us, touch everyone listening, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, verse 53 of John 7, it says, and everyone went to his own house. That's kind of a funny verse in there, but it's there for a reason. This ended the festival of trumpets, or excuse me, festival of booths or or tabernacles. And the reason why is they went and left. Upon them going to their homes, Jesus went somewhere else. And we find this in verse 1 of chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This was a place that Jesus would often go to pray. Why do we need to pray? Well, we need to tell God things that he doesn't know. No, that's not why we pray. God already knows. But you know, there's things that weigh our heart down that we need to convey to God so we know that we've given it to God so it doesn't haunt us or we're without hope. You know, people that don't know God, what do they do about their problems? They worry. But we give our problems to God. Peter said it best where he said, casting all your cares on him, he cares for you. Peter was certainly someone that understood what it was like to worry. We remember he denied the Lord three times. We remember Jesus caught up to him along the the Sea of Galilee after he'd rose from the dead. He said, Peter, do you love me? He said, you know, Lord, I'm fond of you. Then he said again, Peter, do you love me? He said, well, Lord, you know I'm fond of you. Finally, Jesus, in the last part, and this is all when we go into the original language, he said, Peter, are you fond of me? And he said, yes, Lord, I'm fond of you. I think it's interesting. Ask him three times. Jesus was denied by Peter three times. But Peter knew what it was like to be bothered. And yet he said, casting all your cares on him, he cares for you. And literally, the word in the Greek means literally throwing your cares at him. That's important that we do that. Why is that? When you're freed up, you can be who you are. If you're all worried about your past, if you're all worried about the things you did wrong yesterday, you will never be free today to be what you are. That's why people go to psychologists. That's why people go to psychotherapists. That's why people get drunk. I don't know if those are all equal, but the idea is to somehow separate ourselves from what yesterday and before was like so that we can live today. The things of your past, they say, will haunt you. That's true. And if there's no separation from it, 
it will drag you back. Well, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. But early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. I like this. Get this picture. Early in the morning, probably something like today, we all get together, Jesus comes in, and everybody's taught, Jesus has sat. Now, it'd be nice if it just ended right here. But here comes the entourage. Verse 3. Then the Pharisees and the scribes brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. In the very act. Wow. Now, to think about this for a minute, we have to look at this. Because they wanted to catch Jesus transgressing Moses' law. And so it says, Moses in the law commanded us that she should be stoned. But what do you say? And this they said, testing him, that they might have something to which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, wrote in the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear them. Now, let's look at this up close. They brought, you got to remember, these guys are opportunists. Jesus comes early to the temple to teach people the Bible, and here they all come in probably their long robes and all their religious garb, and here's this woman probably half-dressed, and they set her in the midst. We caught this woman adultery in the very act. First question is, how did you do that? How do you catch somebody in the very act? Were they a bunch of perverts looking through windows? Oh, look at that. Two, was it a setup? In other words, they found a guy that would be the John to go to this girl, and so that way, when it got hot and bothered, they could come and get him. Whoa, what's this all about? So in other words, either they were peeping Toms, or they set the girl up. There's really no other way you do that. Well, look what he says. The law says we should stone her. What do you say? Now, really, you know the Pharisees just exuded with love. Don't you see that here? They catch a woman, they grab her, they drag her. Jesus writes in the dirt. Now, friends, there's a couple of things here that's pretty amazing. We only find in the Bible three times that the finger of God wrote anything. First time, if we go back to Exodus 31, 12, this is where God's finger wrote in the stone for Moses, the Ten Commandments. That's the first time. This is the second time that he writes in the dirt. Well, actually, God gave him a a copy. And then we find Jesus writing the first time, and then just as God did, writes the second time. So if you want to really count it, it's four times or two times, two events. But the point is simply this. We find God in the Old Testament writing with his finger. We find Jesus writing with his. Now, as if he didn't hear them, 
That's kind of interesting to me that that's in there. Why, why is that in there? As if he didn't hear them. The answer may be over in the book of James. And if you like to turn there, you can. James chapter 2 is where we'll read. And um, if you don't want to turn there, I'll just read it to you. James is writing here, and he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. We all understand that. In fact, they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And God said, and Jesus said, to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and spirit. And he says, and the second is likened unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two that, was, that, that he said. So he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, a couple things here first. I want to look at this. If you show partiality, showing partiality to what? A, people, or to the law. Those are both really important. If you show partiality to people, well, some people can sin and other people can't. We're going to exemplify one group of people's sin, but we're not going to do anything about somebody else's. Or, if we look more at the context, maybe it's talking about partiality of the sin itself. In other words, that stealing is worse than lying. Well, in our minds today, sometimes we think that. Well, you know, lying, a little white lie here or there, but stealing, oh, that's really bad. Or, or being covetous, that's not as bad as what somebody else has had as bad as adultery. Well, look what he says here. If you show partiality, you commit sin. The reason why we believe this is really speaking of making certain commandments weightier than others is as we read on here, you'll see. Verse 10, for whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. Now that's pretty important to think about. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, Do not murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Actually, you could put any of the other commandments in here in place of being a murderer. Because of this reason, we sometimes graduate sin. God doesn't graduate sin. He is without partiality. You understand that? God looks at sin as sin. It doesn't matter whether you missed the bullseye by an inch or you shot towards Sun Valley. It makes no difference. Sin is not hitting the bullseye. So without partiality, we have to be to the point in our lives where we look at what the law is. And the law condemns man universally. The law, the Ten Commandments, was never meant to justify an individual. The Ten Commandments was to show us all how much we need a Savior. We need a Savior. Now let's look on. So speak, and so do, as those who be judged by the law of liberty. Now verse 13, this is it. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Remember that. 
Judgment will, you, you won't get mercy for your sin if you don't show mercy. That's just the way the Bible says. But notice what he says here, and this is the feature point here. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When you stop to think that God did not give you and me what we deserve, I have to be careful on how I address people outside of Christianity. See, I have to reach out to them. So it doesn't matter if a person's a homosexual or whether they're a liar or they're a thief or whatever. I have to look at them in the law and the light of Jesus Christ. As a Christian, I still have to look at them that way, though we know that certain sins carry a heavier consequence. Now, when Jesus bent down and wrote in the dirt as if he didn't hear them, I believe he was, it's speaking there of without partiality. In other words, he wasn't letting their chatter affect what he was going to write. How dare you do this? We don't know what Jesus wrote in the dirt. He wrote once, then he wrote a second time. Remember in the Old Testament, God wrote once the Ten Commandments. Moses broke them when he saw everybody worshiping the golden calf. Got angry, threw the tablets down. God says, come up, I'll give you another set. Call me in the morning. Two tablets, call me in the morning. We don't know what he wrote. He might have wrote in the sand, how did you catch her? That would be probably a good question. The second question would be, according to Levitical law, chapter 20, verse 10, the man also had to be brought and executed as well. Now that's important. Because if you caught her in the very act, that would say the guy was there. So where's the guy? You know, it's funny when people try to trap you as a Christian in word or in different things. They think their scheme is so clever. You know, well, what about the Ubangi in deepest, darkest Africa? You go, whoa. Never would have thought of that. Well, no, actually, what's amazing is that the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us, as you look at the Bible in Romans, there is a natural order of, of things, and that would compel an individual to know who made this order of all things. They're without excuse, the Bible says. So, where was the guy? He could have wrote in the dirt. How did you catch her? Another question. Now, they continued asking him. And so he himself raised up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. In the Gospels, there's no record of what Jesus actually wrote. All we can do is surmise. Again, Did he write? How did you catch her? The second question, where's the guy? Maybe he began to write down the fantasies of those who were the accusers in the dirt. Something major happened. Then those that heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even unto the last. Interesting. From the oldest 
to the youngest, literally. Whatever it was that Jesus wrote, they became convicted by it and realized there was something wrong with them. Insomuch that they could not throw a stone. Now, friends, again, this doesn't mean we just allow wholesale sinning, but here's the point. Repentance, as we have shown mercy to others, God will show mercy to us. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Okay? Mercy triumphs over justice. Justice is, give me what's coming to me. You know, you know, if you ever get pulled over by a cop and you go plead your ticket before the judge, you don't go to the judge and say, give me what's coming to me, judge. You don't do that. You ever notice that, that they have that, that it's a $100 fine or 120 days in jail and four months probation or a year probation? You say, give me what's coming to me. Okay, a $100 fine, 120 days in jail, and a year probation. But judges are merciful, thank God. Sometimes I wonder why on some cases, but that's another whole topic. If you don't pay your parking ticket, you're in jail for six months. If you murder somebody, you're out before the ink dries on the paper where they arrested you. I don't understand this, but that's just me. But the point is, You want from the judge mercy. Isn't it funny? We want God to be merciful with us, but oftentimes we can be so critical and judgmental of others. Now, I'm not saying we say, okay, that's okay to do that. No, we want to see ourselves as well as them repent from the things that are hurting us. That's what sin does. Sin never does me good. It always hurts. It always hurts. That's why God doesn't want us to do it. God is not a cosmic killjoy that says, my creation, you will have no fun. Chucks lightning bolts down from a cloud. No, that's not the way God works. It's just that God knows more about life than we do. The Bible says in Revelation 22, he's Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, first and the last. That means nothing takes God by surprise. God knows where whatever it is we do leads to. Wow. That means if we're doing things for the kingdom of God, we're going to do things that are going to make an impact in eternity. If we're doing things for ourselves, it's either going to leave us empty or be destructive to us emotionally, physically, spiritually. Just is the way it works. That's why it's sin. If sin was good, it wouldn't be sin. Now, the Bible says there's fun in sin for a season, but always remember that the worm tastes good to the fish until he gets the hook. It's just the way it works. So again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What did he write the second time? Again, we don't know. Could be a combination of their sins, How did you catch her? Where's the man? Where's your love? What have you been forgiven for? We we don't know what Jesus wrote down, but it says, beginning with the oldest. It's funny, he started with the oldest. Why is that? I think because older people, as you get older, you know better. You know, I, I, I think it's really amazing. As you get older in life, you see things different. You just do. 
In fact, I remember, and I've shared this many times, but I remember I was in the seventh grade, leaning up against the chair, against the wall, and I remember the classroom, and the teacher was up in front reading the book of Ecclesiastes. And he said, he was reading it, and he said, and Solomon writes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Some kids said, well, what does that mean? Well, for nothing, for nothing, all is for nothing. And I remember leaning back going, what kind of a saddest wrote this? And it's in the Bible. But you know, when you get older, you begin to see that. You begin to understand the futility of life sometimes. You know, this is what Solomon goes on in Ecclesiastes and says, how do I know if I amass everything that I amass and I die and I'll leave it to somebody that's an idiot and they'll squander it all away? Friends, I think we all have met somebody or known somebody that inherited something from either their parents or their Uncle Fred or Aunt Emma or somebody that got all this, this stuff and they blow through a lifetime fortune in a matter of months. How do you do that? Because they never earned it. They never understood the value of it. And so therefore, easy come, easy go. But as you get older in life, you begin to, you get, begin to look at your life and you begin to look at things around you in a little bit different perspective. The oldest first left. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now this, again, friends, was not done on some back road someplace. This was done from what we gather in the first part of this chapter in the temple. They were very clever to stage it so Jesus' words saying don't stone her or take her away and stone her or whatever would be heard in the front of all the people so that the people then would revolt against Jesus. So they created an episode. And so it was just Jesus was left alone. Not alone without a crowd around him, but those that were the accusers were gone. And by the way, Jesus is the one that takes away your accusers. If you don't know God's word, you will be condemned by them because they don't know God's grace. All they know is judgment. I want to be around people who understand mercy triumphs over judgment. Maybe you don't need mercy today in your life. Looking good and feeling good, I'm cruising with the surf duke. But I guarantee you there will be a time in your life where you'll need mercy. You'll need mercy from God. You'll need mercy from your fellow Christians. You'll need somebody to come up, put their arm around you and say, Hey, buddy, as a matter of fact, I love you. Thank you for joining us on It's Time, as Pastor Mike teaches verse by verse through the Bible. If you've missed a program or would like to catch up, you can do so by getting it from the It's Time podcast in the iTunes store or by downloading it from the It's Time website at theriverchristianfellowship.com slash it's time. On behalf of Pastor Mike and the rest of us here at the River Christian Fellowship, thank you for listening and tune in next time for It's Time.